Cheap Talk 70. This band has no past. And the author, Brian J. Cramp. It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Welcome back to Cheap Talk, your show all about Cheap Trick. And we just got back, right, Brian? It's been a long, long time. It wasn't my idea. Didn't pull the trigger. Oh, oh, oh. uh, uh, uh. So we're not here to sing, and you're probably thanking God for that, or whatever deity you, you wish to serve. But nonetheless, we are here today talking about the book, This Band Has No Past, and we are lucky enough to have the author, Brian J. Cramp. And sir, I just wanted you to know I was a little bit nervous. It's been a while since I've done an interview, and I when I reached out to to see if you would do an interview for our show, I was so glad to hear that you would say yes because I've seen you on so many other shows, and uh, it's just it's been such a treat to hear about this book. And I was lucky enough to get a sneak preview copy. This is a, a great book. I think this is something that everyone who loves this band is really going to cherish and enjoy. Brian, everyone knows, of course, that you're one of the hosts of Cheap Talk, one of this show. So hello, Brian. Welcome to the show once again. Thanks for having me, Ken. Anytime. But seriously, I want to interview you today. I've seen a lot of interviews, but not everyone that has interviewed you loves Cheap Trick as much as us obsessive nerds here do, right? Today, I want to kind of pluck your brain. Why did you decide to write this book, This Band Has No Past? Yeah, you know, we've we've said a lot of times on this show, kind of like you either get it or you don't. And yeah, you're right. There's a it's weird when you venture out into the world of the people who don't quite get it <laughs> and, and try to talk about about being obsessed with Cheap Trick, which uh, is kind of an alien concept to the average person. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I wrote the book, because, I mean, anyone who has listened to Cheap Talk over the years knows kind of how obsessed we are with the band. And, <laughs> you know, we want to know every little minute detail. And that became the objective of the book. I mean, this was the, my one chance or anyone's one chance to get it all, put all this information together, you know. So the book details a lot of the story of what happened before Cheap Trick. And I've kind of been anticipating getting some complaints about that. Um, you know, a couple of the reviews have pointed it out. I don't have any negative reviews that I've seen, but like, I think it was classic rock where like it takes 147 pages to get to Robin Zander joining the band or, you know, stuff like that. And I kind of expect to hear some complaints about, you know, when are we going to read about Cheap Trick? <laughs> Any big Cheap Trick fan knows that a lot happened before Cheap Trick. I mean, these guys were playing a bands for 10 years before they came together as Cheap Trick. And so taking a third of the book to tell all of that. Well, and also, of course, there was a year and a half of Cheap Trick before Robin joined. You know, so the book details all those bands that the guys were in before Cheap Trick. So, for example, Classic Rock says it takes 147 pages to get to Robin Zander joining the band. Yeah, but Robin Zander is in those 147 pages, this, whatever he was doing before he joined Cheap Trick. It's talked about, you know. Um, and 
you know, so I tried to pin down all those details about who was Rick Nielsen playing with this weekend and that weekend. And, you know, how did it's the it's the tale of I mean, you know, I always focus. I always talk about Rick Nielsen. I mean, he he's the he's the guy. Right. He it's his band. Cheap Trick is Rick Nielsen's band. Right. And especially at the beginning. And um, so there's the whole tale of Rick is trying to find the right band. He's playing with all kinds of different people. He's trying to find the band that he wants, but he's also trying to figure out his own vision. Like, you know, it, Rick Nielsen doesn't really start writing this certain kind of song that becomes a cheap trick song pretty much until Robin's in the band. So even his songwriting is developing over the course of that that period. So this was an opportunity to get it all in one book. How did Rick Nielsen finally put together this band with these four guys and finally have the creative outlet and also develop his songwriting style so that by the time he has this band of these four guys, it's right at when he kind of has a creative epiphany, it almost seems like, because he just starts writing songs like crazy. But it's also because he finally has the band, you know, with the singer he wants and with the, the best rhythm section around. And now it has all come together and he starts writing songs like crazy and they just turn into this monster band. You know, there's a couple years there where they're huge in the Midwest and they they're making a good living just playing the clubs in the Midwest, but they have all these songs. They're in a club in 1976 playing Surrender to, you know, just their local fans. And to imagine that they're up on stage, you know, playing a set of all these amazing songs. And they're just at that point of what you would call a local band, you mm -hmm. know? I kind of look at this book really almost something that was never going to happen, right? Sadly, there's only been a few books where Cheap Trick have been featured, two written about them specifically prior to this. Mike Hayes' wonderful book, and then Robert Lawson did his book as well. And it always seemed like Cheap Trick was destined to be the Wikipedia band. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know how Rick always says, we're everybody's favorite fifth band or something like that, whatever that line is that he says sometimes. Mm -hmm. I feel that we were never going to get this book from anywhere and the only person that possibly could have done it would have been you uh the band has always kind of lived by the name of the book this band has no past because they didn't really want to talk about where they came from and stuff like that they didn't see the glamour in it and frankly it allowed them a bit of uh anonymity you know what i mean and to read this book it would be like saying that you only want to read about the beatles when ringo's in the band right but then you forget Hamburg, the story of how they met as the quarrymen, what happened to John's mom, what shaped the guys, how George and Paul met. This is the kind of book that you're getting with This Band Has No Past. It's not just, and Cheap Trick got together, and there's the two cute guys, and the two weird guys, and they had these hits, and they went to Japan. That There's so much with this book. And... If you love the music of this time, 
not only are you dealing with the music of the time, but you also place things in a historical and cultural uh, points of interest. Context. Yeah. Yeah. Context. Everything from what was going on with the son of Sam murder, what was happening here in Liverpool at this point, what was going on at this point, and it all shapes the larger picture. And, you know, at first I'm like, well, okay, what's going on here? And it's just, it, it's almost like it is one of those uh, where you see a, a, a tree that they show a band and then all the branches that come out of it, right? And it could really all come down to Rick Nielsen. The tree comes out with all the different branches. And I've often said this, and a lot of people just don't get this. How amazing was it? that the Beatles all grew up within a few blocks of one another. Do you know what I'm saying? And they had to mm -hmm. go to Germany to basically get with Ringo. And we have some of that going on in this. It's amazing that the members of Cheap Trick all grew up in this town of Rockford. And uh, for people who don't know, you, you start the book out. One of the first things you talk about is the the name Rockford. Could you tell us what that's about? Yeah, well, obviously, I felt like a book about Cheap Trick has to have the history of Rockford. And it's funny how much work you have to do to write three paragraphs about Rockford. <laughs> you know, I read two books and uh, various other, you know, newspaper stuff from newspapers and magazines. And I, I felt like you have to have a history of Rockford. So, you know, it's like a page or less. A, the name of, comes from a rock ford, a ford is like a, a spot in the in the rock river that you could actually walk across the river on foot you know you didn't need a bridge or whatever or a transportation so that's what a ford is and then this ford was made of limestone so it's a rock ford <laughs> and so that's and it's the rock river you know i point out that you know, what better place for Cheap Trick to be from than Rockford on the Rock River. And also you talked about the Beatles. I also felt like kind of learned over the course of the process. Like I remember Richie Rano from Stars was talking to me about the baby boom. It's like the collision of the baby boom generation with the British invasion is really what explodes into the rock record industry of the 70s because you have the most teenagers ever in history because of the baby boom at the same moment that the Beatles and the British invasion hit. And, you know, I say this in every interview, but there's a statistic in my book that by 1967, two thirds of all American males under the age of 23 were in a rock band. And that's because of the Beatles and the British invasion. And it's also because they don't have smartphones or the internet or Nintendo, they don't have anything, a guitar and an amp or a drum set. That's what they have. That really could be your friend. Yeah, all the young people inspired by the Beatles and the British Invasion, it becomes a huge fad for a while to be in a band. But what you get with a band like with guys like the guys in Cheap Trick is these are the guys. Most of those people moved on with their lives. <laughs> but these four guys, this was their life. So they were the be they were the ones who were not only they were they the best out of all those people, but they were also the most dedicated. They were the biggest, like I say in the book, the cheap tricks, the best of both worlds, music made by huge rock fans for huge rock fans. These guys are 
huge fans. And I always think that the best bands are the guys who are also the biggest fans of music at the same time. So they have that kind of devotion and that drive. And like numerous people talk to me about how from early on, Rick Nielsen was going to make this his life. And like I took like Jim Zubiena, who was the drummer in the Grim Reapers early on with Rick, he said, Rick was going to make this his life. I was not. I was just playing in a band for fun. I was not never intended that my life was going to be playing in a band. But Rick Nielsen always, that's what he wanted for his life was to play rock and roll. And he did it. And this is kind of this book is kind of the story of how he did it. And it took him a, a long time. You know, he was playing in bands for more than 10 years before he had a record deal and a whole variety of, of different bands and, you know, moving out to Philadelphia for a couple of years to try to make it happen. You know, that's the kind of story that was important for me to tell was the story of them moving to Philly and they were working at that club called Artemis. And, you know, first it was just Rick and Stuky that moved out there, but eventually it gets Tom and Bunny to move out there and you basically have Cheap Trick with a different singer but called Sick Man of Europe, but it's Rick, Tom, and Bunny. Well, it to me, it really comes down to a, any band that Rick Nielsen had by any other name was eventually going to be Cheap Trick. You know, I mean, it seems like that. And I just like the idea how you frame the whole thing, that this one spot where the, the river was low, you could walk and stand in the river on solid rock. And this is this is the solid rock foundation of Cheap Trick. We mentioned the Beatles earlier and we talked about how like it's hard to believe the Beatles all grew up so close to one another. The difference between Cheap Trick and the Beatles at their origin is that it seems like there was almost an unwillingness for these guys to become abandoned at certain points. Does that make any sense? Like whereas it's like Paul met George and it's like, hey, let's do something. And then they met John and John was at first, you know, looking at Paul as a bit of a challenge, but then he's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. I'd rather have you in my band than as competition. It seemed like there were all these little band rivalries going on, whether it was Bunny Carlos with the Pagans versus the Grim Reapers. And so we had times when Bunny might be playing with a young Robin Zander and Tom with Rick. And eventually they all got it together, right? Tom and Rick were together. Basically, Rick joined Tom's band. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting part because there was this band, Toast and Jam, that Tom was in with Craig Myers and Chip Greenman. Those are the core musicians of Fuse. And when Rick saw that band, he knew that he wanted to get with those guys because they were the best musicians around. Craig, Tom, and Chip. Yeah, that's one thing I talk about in the book. Like I talked to Ron Holm, who was the singer of Toast and Jam, and uh, he talks about how he couldn't believe he ended up in this band with these guys because they were so talented. And so um, because they were all just doing covers for the almost exclusively before they became Fuse. And the, the point of Fuse was to start writing original material. So that's why Rick basically dumped the other guys he was playing with in the Grim Reapers and linked up with this band Toast and Jam. And he brought Joe Sunberg, who was his singer. But the thing is about Joe Sunberg is Joe Sunberg was in the band with Tom Peterson and Craig Myers before Toast and Jam called the Bull Weevils. So Joe had already been in a band with those. Basically, Toast and Jam was just the Bull Weevils moving on without Joe Sunberg and getting a new singer 
and they had to get a new drummer because the drummer in the Bull Weevils was Craig Meyer's brother Mike, but he had, he got drafted, you know, because that's another kind of theme in this book is how Vietnam and the draft was hanging over all these guys at this time. And so they end up calling it the Grim Reapers before the record label makes them change it to Fuse, but it's really a toast and jam that Rick joins. But then they decide to go by the Grim Reapers just because it's a more well-known name in terms of getting gigs and bringing people out to the clubs. You know, they might as well use the Grim Reapers name because it's people, it's more well-known than Toast and Jam. But really, Rick and Joe Summer joined Toast and Jam is, is really what happened. And it's also interesting that when I talked to Ron Holm, he was going to be in that band too. But he just decided, you know, he was in college at the time. And he's like, I can't be in a band and maintain because he was studying math. And he's like, if I end up blowing it with college, I might end up in Vietnam. So I got to concentrate on my studies. So that's another interesting thing that I discovered over the course of writing this book is this idea of Rick Nielsen having a band with two singers. There's three different times he tries to do that. And it's, it's, it's really interesting that, I mean, he actually did it with the early Grim Reapers. They had two singers, Gary Shooter and Joe Sunberg. And, you know, neither one of those guys played an instrument. So they would... Joe could sing like the soul music and Gary Shooter could sing like the Rolling Stones and stuff. And they would kind of switch off and maybe one guy would play a tambourine or something. Then when the band ends up being called Fuse, Ron Holm, who was the singer of Toast and Jam, he comes to the first rehearsal with Joe Sunberg. And once again, they're looking at having two different singers and Ron played harmonica. But Ron ended up just not going to the next rehearsal because he was like, I got to concentrate on on college. And then later, when Rick gets Robin in the band, that's a really interesting story about how he tries to get this guy, George Faber, from a kind of legendary band from Champaign, Illinois, called the Finchley Boys. He tries to get George to join, and then they would have two singers, George and Robin. So that's the third time in the story that Rick has this concept of having a band with two singers. And it's really, it's really weird that that's like something he he explored multiple times um it's really that's one thing i would love to talk to rick about is what was the what was the concept behind that or why why was he interested in that dynamic of having two different singers now i want to ask you a question when we start our book uh you know you go back to the the town's founding if you will and then you talk about how these characters are introduced a little bit at a time whether it be Rick's dad, Ralph. And then that sets the stage for how maybe Rick could have seen that you can make a living in the music business, either this way, that way, or another way, right? And mm -hmm. then you kind of set the stage. And I'm wondering at this point, in my head, I'm going, as someone who's never been to Rockford, I'm going, how big is this town, let's say in 1964? How big was Rockford? Well, it was the second biggest city in Illinois after Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was one of those industrial towns that was booming at the time. And now it's basically in ruins because all the jobs left decades ago. Factories and stuff. Yeah. But at the time it was a, it was a booming town. You know, they, it was a big city. It was so booming. It was even what the, the screw center. What was the nickname? Yeah, there's various nicknames, the Screw City, Furniture City. They had all these different, you know, they built airplane parts. They built stuff for the military. They, yeah, they, there were uh, screw factors there. 
you know, the the sock monkey comes out of Rockford. Um, there, there was just tons of industry there. So there were lots and lots of jobs. Well, I just imagine a lot of people would like to go to Screw City anyway. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's yeah. a whole nother point. But what I'm getting at is like, you know, you, I kind of had an idea for like how the city actually grew over time. And as you talk about how industry kind of left, there's things like that that talk about like where you talk about how things are set up, like you said, in context, culturally, what's going on. It's just amazing that these guys were in this town and it took so long for the four of them to click together. And we have our great friend Brian Beebe in this book. There's so many people that have been on the show that are featured in this book, interviews with everybody from everywhere in the Cheap Trick story, it seems. And you're really trying to do a thorough, in-depth history of this band and how they became. This is not just cursory Wikipedia look at here's their greatest hits and here's their albums and stuff like that. It goes way beyond that and it really goes deep. And I think that this is a book, you know, I don't want to try and dissuade people from buying it, but this is for serious cheap trick fans. You know, let your mileage vary on that, whether you are one or not. If you're listening to this show, chances are you are. I found it to be a fascinating read. And it was, you actually kind of put us, the readers, there during these times. Yeah, I I talked to at least one person from any band that any of these guys were in before Cheap Trick. But a huge part of the book is the participation of Ken Adamani, who was Cheap Trick's manager from the very beginning. And Ken was also heavily involved in the pre-Cheap Trick story. You know, he, he managed Fuse and helped them get a record deal with Epic. And people know about the Pagans having that single that was out, Good Day Sunshine. Well, Ken Adamani put that out. You know, that's a record label that Ken had called Rampro that put out that Pagan single. You know, Ken was a booking agent before he was a manager, and he booked gigs for the Bull Weevils and the Pagans and the Grim Reapers. Ken never really had an association with Robin until cheap trick but he worked with all the other guys even before cheap trick and uh eventually he, you know most of his focus eventually becomes cheap trick because they're the best man and he sees the potential and you know he knows how good they are and also he talks about how different they were i mean that's an important thing is that in 1975 76 cheap trick were very unique and original and that's a big reason why they were blowing people's minds you know Every other guy who was in a band around the Midwest, they would have all probably said Cheap Trick's the best band around, you know, and they were all big fans. And we've talked about that on this show, too, about how Cheap Trick are like the band's band. They're the musician's band. Like you say, the comedian's comedian. And they really were kind of from the start. And, uh, you know, a huge part of that is Rick Nielsen's songwriting, which was so unique and just kind of crazy at the time. I describe it as reckless and fearless. He just, and I think a big part of it is that, you know, Craig Myers, who was the guitar player in Fuse, you know, Rick mostly played keyboards in Fuse. He would play guitar live sometimes, but like on the Fuse album, Craig Myers played every note of guitar on that album. Because Craig Myers was like a virtuoso. He was a guy who loved Eric Clapton played a lots of you know solos and stuff and that's not the kind of guitar player rick nielsen ever was rick nielsen kind of created his own style and really used the guitar 
to create songs. And the I think Rick Nielsen's approach to guitar is a big reason why his songwriting was so different and unique and just fucking cool and kind of just out there and crazy. That's one thing to love, especially about early Cheap Trick is that, and I guess that's why people, some people were disappointed by kind of the commercial nature once Tom Werman gets involved. And that's what's so different about the first album is they're not trying to be mainstream or commercial in any way. In fact, if, if anything, early Cheap Trick was alienating and like kind of, you're going to have a limited fan base when you're this kind of wacky and just uh, weird and abrasive almost. Right. But that's something to just love. I think that's one thing that really inspires a lot of the love of many of us fans is that, like I say, Rick Nielsen was the mad genius behind a lot of this and having such talented people as Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, and Bunny Carlos just made this a a force to be reckoned with. Agreed. Now, I'm planning on doing several shows kind of using this book as, like, read along with Ken and Brian, right? This is one of those things that we're going to use this book to kind of tell the story of Cheap Trick, and you can get this, you can get this wherever finer books are sold, but there's so many neat things that I found out as a fan from this book that I've not read too many other places. Uh, you go into details about like how the in-color photo shoot happened, for example. You go into bits about where the band had recorded at the Whiskey, the live show, and they were asked about it, and they said, who wants a live album? You know, that live albums are boring or something like that. It's amazing to think that just in a few years from there, it would be a different story, how different, uh, you know, band life changing, if you will, that a live album would become. You can see what's going to happen as they lead up to the edge of Budokan, if you will, and how they tour with each band. It's also interesting to see how uh, Eric Van Lustbatter, right? That's his name? Mm -hmm. How he wrote that thing where this band has no past and where he basically lies about everybody in the band, right? For all intents and purposes, he's he's myth building, right? Mm -hmm. And Cheap Trick themselves were guilty of this. Like, for example, if they went and saw a band, they would say that they opened for them or supported them, right? Yeah, there's a there's an interview with a local Rockford, like free paper from Rockford called Absolutely Free, where almost every word they say to that interviewer is a lie. <laughs> it's like, it's all, it's all myth building. And yeah, they talk about, you know, they say they opened for the New York Dolls. Well, it was Dr. Bop and the Headliners. Dr. Bop and the Headliners were this band that Ken Adamani, basically it's what got Ken Adamani back into the management game right before Cheap Trick comes along. And so Dr. Pop and the Headliners are really important in this story of Cheap Trick because th that's why Ken Adamani was set up to manage Cheap Trick is because of his work with a band like Dr. Bop, who were very popular. They were like a 50s kind of cover band, but they were very popular. And Cheap Trick opened for them early on. And like Bunny Carlos told me, Dr. Bop opened a lot of doors for Cheap Trick. It was the fact that Ken had a few really popular bands on his roster. And he was ready there to, to work with a band like Cheap Trick and start helping them 
build a following. But anyways, the reason I went off on this Dr. Bob thing is because they were the ones that opened for the New York Dolls. Tom Peterson was at the show, but then they tell this guy in this interview that they opened for the New York Dolls. And yeah, like you say, they talk about they opened for... uh, kiss rory rory gallagher right well yeah when uh that was a story of uh rick nielsen and craig myers in uh like 73 or 74 they went out to la to do session work jackie mills who produced the fuse album he brought those guys out there they were out there to do session work with rod richards who was from the band rare earth and this is stuff that never ended up coming out so i've i mean i don't think you can hear this um but Anyways, so Rick and Craig were out in L.A. to do this session work, and they went and saw Rory Gallagher, I think, at the Whiskey. And then Rick tells this interviewer that Cheap Trick opened for, for Rory Gallagher. It's like, yeah, well, no, they ne- they'd never, they never did. Or they say, I think in that interview, they say they opened for Aerosmith, which that was not, you know, they, all these fans, they say they opened for. That was another one where uh, Bunny told me that Tom had seen Aerosmith out in philadelphia that's one funny thing is tom peterson wasn't in cheap trick at the beginning you know they had all been out in philadelphia and they moved back to rockford but almost as soon as they moved back to rockford in 73 they fired stookie and sick man of europe kind of fell apart right away and then tom was just like screw this and he went back to philadelphia because there's always a girl yeah that's what bunny said and so <laughs> Tom was out in Philadelphia at the time, cheap trick for him, that he saw Aerosmith. Bunny had told me about how Tom had seen Aerosmith out there, and he had told the guys about it. And so then in this interview, they say they opened for Aerosmith. It's like any band they had seen, they had opened for. It was just, uh, and, but I guess they were just trying to make themselves seem more successful or myth building. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, they also said, People wonder why they don't see us for a while, and it's because we're out touring the rest of the world. And it's like, no, (laughs) they're just hanging out, you know, waiting for the next event. But again, myth building. And to be honest with you, nobody gets anywhere in life if you if you don't elaborate a little bit. You know, that's just the way it is. And what else? You know, it's just a cheap trick, right? (laughs) Well, that becomes such a big part of it. I and really. You know, you were talking about Eric Van Loosbotter's biography on the inner sleeve of the first album, which is where the title of the book comes from. And that, I don't think the band really had much involvement with that. No, they did. It was the the record label kind of honed in on the sense of humor, kind of the absurdity of the cheap trick image, and said we're gonna we're gonna run with this. And that's why their marketing campaign there was a lot of humor in the marketing campaign, and that's why the According to Bunny and Ken, well, they weren't really sure, but Bunny kind of thought that the idea of having side one and side A, that was just a record label thing because they were kind of playing up the the sense of humor that's kind of inherent in Cheap Trick. And that's why that bio was kind of this ludicrous, confusing thing in the Cheap Trick story is this idea of Europe. And they spent all this time in Europe and, you know, that bio claims that they formed the whole band over in Europe or whatever. Well, even when I talked to Zeno, I was just going back through some of my old interviews recently. And Zeno had mentioned, you know, Rick and Tom lived in London, he said. Rick and Tom went to London for like two weeks. Is that living in London? <laughs> you know, they like to they like to act like they were living. They never I mean, Tom did go over and live in Germany. I think Mike Meyer said it was about six months 
because Mike Myers, who had been in the Bull Weebles with Tom, and he was Craig Myers' brother, he was over in Germany because he was in the army. And Tom went over there and stayed with him for like six months or something. And then at some point, Mike Myers told me Rick and Stuckey and Rick's wife Carriage showed up at his place. And then Rick also talks about how they lived in, I think, Nuremberg because Karen, Rick's wife's grandma, I think, still lived in Nuremberg and they went and stayed with her. But you're only you're talking about visiting. You're not talking about we moved to Europe and lived there for an extended period. But that's kind of how they ran with it later and, you know, kind of went along with this idea that they had they were these expats over in Europe or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and it, yeah, so there would be like a kernel of truth. There would be like a seed. But then they would kind of expand on it. Or if the record label said in the bio that they all lived in Europe, then they just kind of for a while they went along with it. I mean, Bunny talked about how that became a problem for years because in a lot of interviews, they went along with some of this nonsense. But then it just became confusing and people didn't know what to believe at some point, you know. Plus, the bigger you get, the more people come out of the woodwork and so on and so forth. The weird thing about it is, is that every time that you see them do, doing this, for lack of a better term, myth building, you see it and go, well, they eventually do this stuff, right? Like whether it's saying we opened up for Queen and they did. We opened up for Kiss and they did. We opened, you know, they keep doing this time and time again. They keep pulling these rabbits out of a hat uh in their history right so it's almost like uh that was the target and they eventually wind up hitting it so many times more often than not i mean look at they became cheap trick right uh four guys from rockford which is really 35 guys from rockford that they had to whittle down and change the name and shape it into the clay that eventually becomes this thing that we know as cheap trick and these are other things that will be found out in your book how the bass, the 12-string bass came to be, uh, how Rick Nielsen came to be, how Bunny Carlos came to be. And by that, I mean he went from Brad Carlson to how he got the look that he wound up with. Uh, this is stuff that they could not have set down and said, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Just everywhere along the way, from the, the lady who gave Bunny his haircut one day, you know what I'm saying? It just, it just keeps building and building and building. And the press never knew what to make of Cheap Trick. Never knew what to make of Cheap Trick, but they did have a name for some of them. I'm going to read just a few of the things that Rick Nielsen was called by critics and writers, okay? An unashamed jester by Zigzag. An unabashed loon by Triad. Consummate lunatic from Trouser <laughs> Press. Incredibly bizarre from the Omaha World Herald. Of course, I don't know how exciting the Omaha World Herald ever gets, but, you know, aging bat boy, <laughs> inmate of Bedlam, Dr. Demento reject, Mr. Personality personified. I'd get that put on a shirt. I think that, you know, a crazed character like Curly from the Three Stooges or Phil Silvers from Sergeant Bilko, a schizoid 12-year-old Art Carney. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on yeah there's and, like uh, a there's like a two and a half page list of those and every writer had a different way a different hilarious way to describe rick which i picked up early on and i started compiling that list that was one of the first ideas i had very early on was to have this list in the book of all the different ways that people writer writers across the country the way they described rick 
and the way they describe the band. Right. Because everybody, you know, I think that's another thing about Cheap Trick. They inspired all of these writers to be creative. And right. like every guy came up with a different creative way to describe them. There's also a shorter list of descriptions of Bunny that are even more specific. Yes, I'm ridiculous. going to read some of them right now. <laughs> a Nebraskan assistant minister whose church was just foreclosed upon. That was in the Rolling Stone. A bank teller in a 30s gangster film. That's from the D Detroit Free Press. Time warped from a Dutch, a Dutch Solch gangland killing. Illinois entertainer. They had to really work for that, right? Miss the 714 from Stamford to Grand Central Station. That's the Berkshire Sampler. A nervous accountant from the Tallahassee Democrat. A chain-smoking accountant with a robust appetite. Miami Herald. It just went on and on and on. And I, I love that. I end that list of bunny descriptions with one that's just very normal. Yeah, very normal. <laughs> from the Medassi music sheet. Lovable rotund uncle from Plain Dealer. Tom Bosley with a mustache and wire rims. That's the journal star. Yeah. Uh, an extra from a Bogart movie, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, a cross between Mr. Whipple and a Times Square pimp. That was by the triad. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. That, the, the kid at school that you called Professor from the record mirror. So, but it's weird. I'm going to read this bit if it's okay. Writers had a lot less to work with when it came to Robin Zander and Tom Peterson, but they tried. The Los Angeles Times noted Robin's classic teen idol looks and Tom's accessibility, concluding that you'd think that they were picked by a faultless rock computer. As for Rick and Bun, the other two members looked like they were picked as a practical joke. Rob <laughs> Patterson, writing for the Salisbury Daily Times, described Tom as a version of Warren Beatty, while bemoaning Robin's wispy blondness. So it's it's just weird that the 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 two who you might think, well, these two won't be the popular ones. They're the ones that get written about the most, it seems other than the cuteness and hotness and coolness of the, the other two, these two were kind of like a lightning rod for the press. Yeah, well, can you imagine having never seen Cheap Trick before, and you just look at this band, and you've got... Well, we all you know, did, right? I mean, that's everybody's yeah. story. You're just like, what the <laughs> hell's going on here, right? Everyone, everyone. And... You end this this one chapter, the way they captured character and caricature was brilliant. That was a Mick Fabus quote, yeah, right? Yeah, Mick Fabus wrote, the way they captured character and caricature was brilliant. Mick Fabus was in a band called Fawn that, that yes. Robin Zander was briefly in. And I thought that was a great quote from Mick. You know, th that's an example of all these guys I talked to who were in other bands, they all really admired Cheap Trick and had really interesting things to say about them like that. Well, I like how you end this chapter. You quote Kerry Baker, who pondered why Cheap Trick uh, kind of worked. Uh, he wrote in Triad Magazine. He wrote, in the current fragmented epoch of rock, it's possible to be anyone you choose given the right devices. And you say Cheap Trick had the right devices. And boy, that really sums it, it up. And, you know, in this book, I found out the day that I really became a Cheap Trick fan because I had heard the first two albums but it wasn't until november 10th 
when the Don Kirshner Rock concert aired. So because of this book, I was able to see the exact date that I went like, fuck this. This is my new favorite band. You know what I mean? I could actually go back to that night. That performance is amazing. It absolutely is. So there's so much that any any fan of this band will find out stuff that they never heard before. And the things that you may have known about, you're going to get a refresher course, but there's so much to learn. I, I feel that I'm a fairly obsessive fan about this band. I just did not do as much of the work as you did, and you got to work with Ken Adamani and Bunny Carlos a little bit on this. You ran this stuff by them and interviewed them. And Ken Adamani supplied me with so much information and uh, documents and dates you know, a really important thing is the dates. I have, with help from various sources, friend of the show Clive Palmer helped me a lot putting this list of dates together. Kim Gisborne, he has a list online called The Gigography that was a good place to start from. And uh, and just searching through old newspapers, I found a lot of dates from old newspapers. And then now our friend Ken Adamani apparently has the complete list of every show Cheap Trick played. And while he wouldn't share that complete list with me, he would confirm the dates for me. He would tell me which dates were wrong. And he would also fill in some of the blanks. He did give me a lot of dates. So at one point, once Cheap Trick is rolling, kind of becomes a day-by-day story. And it's just how they built this thing in the clubs debuting new songs constantly and just building and building and there was a lot of record label interest beginning in 1975 and they had different opportunities and uh you know they practically had a bidding war going on when they when they finally signed with epic and you know they could have ended up with mercury they uh or they were very close to ending up on capital they had interest from lots of different labels and that's I have a lot of that information thanks to Ken Adamani. You know, he still has letters from people. He could tell me he has the rejection letters from a lot of them. You know, they were rejected by a label that was offering them a deal, you know, a matter of months later, things like that. But um, yeah, it's, so it becomes a almost a day-to-day story. And that's a big reason for that is the, the input from Ken Adamani, who was a, obviously for a book like this, having... You know, a lot of participation from someone like Ken is just uh, very vital and, uh, you know, very important. With this book, it's like I have to I got to tell the the story of the logo. So you get a very detailed story of the creation of the Cheap Trick logo by the, a fan of the band named Chris Pro. It's fascinating. Or like you said, the 12 string bass. I'm like, I've got to. So I talked to Joel Danzig, who built the first 12 string bass, and I tried i did my best even though i'm not a gear guy i don't i i felt kind of self-conscious because i don't really have that knowledge base about instruments about gear about the you know the functioning about how these instruments are put together exactly how they work but there's a guy named mark rowe who has the a website called the the 12 string bass encyclopedia and after i had my whole section about the 12 string bass written I sent it to him as like, is there anything I'm wrong about? Anything I'm missing? And he's he had no changes to offer. He said it's good the way it is. So, you know, I'm I'm not a hundred percent confident just because I don't feel like I have 
the enough of detailed knowledge or understanding about that to maybe get it perfect. But, you know, I did my best to really explain how the 12 string bass came together because I felt like, you know, this is the book that has to have, it has this, something like this has to be in here. If not here, where else, right? This is a labor of love from people who love this band. Uh, whether it's everybody who helped you along the way to to your slavish devotion to this, uh, seriously, it all shows. And it's almost like you're unraveling spaghetti, right? You're trying to figure out where this started from and where this came from. And you find the people that go behind the myth building and point out, well, yeah, but this is what was going on at the time. So it's almost like you get this fact, quote unquote, and then you find out the real details of the fact. And you kind of find the truth behind the myth, if you will. One thing that I can clearly say, like as someone who wants to own a 12 string bass and just loves Tom Peterson, and I'm so enamored of it, that chapter about the bass and as an artist, that chapter about the logo and how that came to be is just, ah, you know what I mean? It, it, It is just amazing. And then to see that logo put all around the world in all these various places, oh, the, the, oh, the places you will go, right? But there's one thing that I can say kind of sums up this book in total. There is a picture, and there are several pictures, of the band and the bands leading up to the band. And there's some of flyers and documents and ads. And there's this one document in particular that really sums up the book for me. And it is Ken Adamani's secretary doing shorthand, writing the lyrics as transcribed as as they're coming through for he's a whore you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah and i'm looking at this and i see he's a whore at the beginning and then it's just stenography talk or whatever the whatever glyph or language that is i'm like what (laughs) and you have actually interpreted the history of cheap trick in a way that it makes sense to us the fans that's really what you've done with this book What's hilarious about that shorthand is when you get down towards the bottom, you just see one word, gigolo, because <laughs> there's no, there's, there's no, no shorthand. Word. Yeah, there's no for, shorthand. For, yeah, what, what, what Rick would do is uh, he would write lyrics and then he would call Ken's office, dictate the lyrics to Ken's secretary over the phone. She would take them down real fast in shorthand and then she would type them up and then Rick would have his lyrics typed up <laughs> and, and Ken Ken still has some of those, you know, this is from a yellow legal pad. I think he also sent me a picture of, I think it was downed or maybe come on, come on that he, I think, it, yeah, I think it was come on, come on. He, he, he has more than just, he's a whore, but you know, he's a whore is so great. Cause I love how you just see gigolo down towards the bottom. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty amazing little artifact that Ken still has. I mean, who would save that? You know, you're, this is from 1975, you know? Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And one thing I don't point out in that in the book, but that secretary who wrote that he's a whore in shorthand, she is currently Ken's wife. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. well, it's got a happy ending then. Yeah. And speaking of happy endings, Cheap Trick is still on tour doing their thing. And it's just an amazing bit of the legacy. And you leave us at a certain point with the book. Is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> that would be a lot more difficult to to pull off you know 
Yeah, the book ends when Budokan is about to come out because everybody knows what happens after that. Or they think they do. I mean, it just builds and builds towards this moment when the band are actually going to take off. Yeah, and this is the origin story, really. I mean, it goes in depth. We we get to learn a lot about in, about the making of In Color and, you know, and uh, touring with Kiss. And I mean, it goes up right up to when I Ken Adam and he actually gave me the exact date of when they started recording Dream Police which was toward the end of 78. And so, you know, it goes all the way up to the point where, because Budokan didn't come out in the U.S. till the beginning of 79. So it just builds and builds towards that point. But, you know, one of my main goal, one of my goals I set for myself with this book was not to piss anyone off. I didn't want to put anything in the book that, you know, I thought the guys from the band wouldn't like. I didn't want... And so I think <laughs> as you move forward in the story, that gets a lot harder to do. You know, I mean, you have Tom Peterson's exit from the band, which uh, right. is a really a did he jump or was he pushed uh, dilemma there. You then the band gets sued by the record label. You know, Cheap Trick is it's a much more. Uh, it's a much messier story once we get into the 80s. Well, as as the uh, saying goes, egos at stake, right? Because after all, reputation is a fragile thing. You can't write a sequel, for example, without telling the real story of what happened with Tom being out of the band. And I don't think there's a way to get the real story. Or at this point, there's no one's going to go on the record with the real story. Um, so I, I just becomes a much more a much messier situation to, to write the next chapter in the story. Um, so I don't really see that as much of a, a possibility. I mean, if somebody came to me and asked me to do it, maybe I would try, but I don't really know if it's how possible it is to write the same kind of book as what I have here <clears throat> about the next, the next part of the story. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm just going to tell your future. There are more cheap trick books in your future. I'm just going to put that out there right now. I see it. I can see it. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question. How was your cheap talk interview today? Um, it was exhilarating. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> oh, I should look. Oh, I should look at the description of the band from the book and <laughs> use that. It was deliciously unsettling. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's what I aim for. But I know that you've marveled at my unique interview skills over the years. Everyone has. And uh, I just wondered what it would be like sitting on the other end of this now. So, I mean, it's, you know, of course, it's been a completely surreal experience. I've basically been doing a press tour. And, of yeah. course, you, you end up repeating yourself a lot. And it's just a weird it's almost unavoidable to repeat yourself a lot because, you know, you get asked similar questions or <clears throat> you cover similar topics. But yeah, I mean, I've, some of them aren't out yet, but. Well, now you know why when you see an interview with Rick Nielsen or Gene Simmons or Mickey <laughs> Dolans or whoever, who flung dung, they do the same thing because it works in, in Piqua, it works in, uh, you know, it works everywhere. If it'll play in Peoria, right? 
You mean you want to hear the story about Rick playing with John Lennon again? Exactly. There you go. So it's that sort of thing, but that's why, because if it works in live at five, it'll work on the morning zoo. It'll work in classic rock magazine. That's why. So you're seeing the other side of that. It's very interesting. Well, as we, as we, as we find with the, our cheap talk page, people, people somehow don't know stuff that you think everyone knows. And you still, to this day, you'll get someone commenting saying, where's bunny. <laughs> you know, right. and it's like this person still doesn't know it's about, yeah. You know, so there's still a lot of people out there who haven't heard the story of Rick playing with John Lennon. So. And that's why he talks about it. Uh, it is a great story though. So I'm happy to hear it. I'm just glad to see Rick and Robin and Tom uh, Bun, Dax, anybody doing anything, uh, Robin Taylor Jr., all of all of the cats. I'm just glad to see it still going on some way or another. I am grateful for the moments that we have with everybody as time goes closer on the curtain to be drawn. Uh, just lost a friend this weekend who is in the Monkees touring band. And I am glad that we still have these cats with us. It was scary when uh, Rick sprained his ankle and people were like, What's, where's Rick? Where's Rick? But thank God, you know, glad that everybody's still here. And it has been my honor to do this with you. I loved what you had to say uh, and your thanks for me and Clive and everybody else that you thanked in the book. And uh, I'm just uh, glad to be part of this with you. And I'm glad to say I'm the guy who discovered BJ Cramp. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, obviously if I hadn't, you know, if I hadn't started my own podcast and then met you and, and you were, you were gracious enough to include me in this cheap talk thing. And obviously I don't see the book, probably happening if i hadn't you know i started interviewing people for my show we started interviewing people for this show i mean a big part of this book is interviewing people which is not something many people have done in their life and the how i moved into this realm of actually interviewing people it really started with podcasting and then also tracking people down i started doing that for the podcast and you know that was a big part of the book is find there's still people i was never able to find I mean, there's so many people I wish I could have talked to for the book that I wasn't able to, but I did manage to find a lot of people who were hard to find. A lot of people, I would find their kid on Facebook and their kid would put me in touch with their dad. You know, like Denny Orsinger, this is a guy who was in the Bull Weevils. He was actually the bass player in the Bull Weevils because Tom played guitar. And, you know, that's another thing about this book is if I talk to Denny Orsinger for an hour there's maybe two minutes of that that made it into the book, you know, right, right, right. but yeah, I just built it uh, piece by piece. But yeah, I mean, podcasting was kind of is what started me down this road to end up where I am now. We're having actually written a book about cheap trick, which is like an insane, surreal accomplishment, dream come true kind of thing. Um, but yeah, you definitely played a role in getting me to where I am now. So thank you, Ken. Well, thank you. Seriously. I love you. And, uh, came up on Facebook that there were pictures of us meeting for the first time. I've lost a lot of weight since then and you've gained a book. So there you go. And some weight. <laughs> so we've, we've done, we've done fairly well for ourselves. Um, and it's amazing. We've tracked down Tom Worman, uh, more cowbell and the Pete Kamita 
managed to learn how to speak perfect English for us. It's amazing. Oh my God, the Bruce Dickinson, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the greatest things ever that I, for one of my proudest moments of rock and or roll was when I did an episode of Songs with Cowbell and I had Bruce Dickinson introduce his yeah. favorite song with Cowbell. I mean, come on. How great is that? <laughs> oh, my God. It's been amazing. This has been a great thing. We've run across so many great people. Uh, Mike Hayes, Tracy Yashulas, Clive Palmer, and the list goes on and on and on and on. You know, speaking of Bruce Dickinson, I mean, I have the chapter in the book about the confusion about what's the first song, what's the first side of the first Cheap Trick album. And because of uh, my associate with Bruce, he sent me amazing pictures of the boxes of the master tape which where you can actually read it because you know they're on those epic archives things but you but yeah that was a huge uh resource to have those clear pictures and if you want to find out about it get the book yes, this band uh, has no past available amazon target that's another thing in the book is that definitively <laughs> i could it's cleared up about what the actual intention was with the the first side right there's so many mysteries cleared right. up. another of my favorite things in the book that people are going to want to find out is how the checkerboard pattern became a part of the cheap trick dynamic oh yes who would have thunk it but we will talk about that in future episodes of cheap talk your favorite show about cheap trick i have to imagine we want to thank you for listening today and again i want you to go out and get this band has no past by the one, the only, Brian J. Cramp. And it is available where finer books are sold, and even this one. You can get it on Amazon, Target, wherever. You can get it ordered online. You can even get it signed uh, for a while. So there's links for that we'll put on our Facebook page. And there is a blog spot that people can go to, right, BJ, all about this book. Yeah, if you just go to thisbandhasnopast.com, it will take you there. And I've been sharing a lot of rare pictures and stuff, documents I have from Ken Adamani. I mean, I shared that four-page question, questionnaire that Rick Nielsen filled out in 1967. Uh, you can see that. It's very cool. It's actually Rick handwritten with a pen. I, Ken Adamani let me bring the actual thing that existed since 1967. He let me bring it home and scan it. <laughs> so this is a... So it's, you know, stuff like that on the blog, it's pretty, I think it's pretty fun to get to see that kind of stuff. Fantastic. So get the book, This Band Has No Past. Uh, it is it is definitely worth picking up if you're a Cheap Trick fan. We'll be back soon. We're going to do an episode with interviews that help make up this book. Tracy's going to be doing some stuff in the future as well. And we're just going to keep things going. And like I said, I want to kind of use this book to like inform future episodes so you can read along with us, folks. So thank you for listening to Cheap Talk today. Thank you for being a guest on the Cheap Talk podcast, Brian J. Cramp. Thank you for having me, Ken. Mm -hmm. So until next time, suicide! No, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's wrong. I can't do that. Thank you for listening to Cheap Talk today. Thank you, Brian. It has been a blast and glad to be back doing this with you. Thanks, Ken. All right. Until next time, say see you, Brian. See you, Brian. Buenas noches. Bye-bye. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members, past or present. 
If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap trickin'.